And so let me kind of explain. When I was growing up uh, in youth group, I was that kid, and I, I don't know which kid in our youth group is this kid, but I was the kid who asked 1,000 questions. Uh, I mean, every theological, philosophical, crazy question you could imagine. I was the kid asking those questions. Can God make a rock so big that God can't pick it up? You know, those kinds of questions. That my youth pastor would look at me and go, Brent, shut up. You know, uh, you know, can I lose my salvation? What, what about evolution and science and God and, and how do those things reconcile? And, and what about the end times and all those crazy movies and things? And, and how do I make sense of all that? And I, as, as I asked question after question, I was always met with this dismissive tone of, Brent, just believe. Just have faith. Just trust. Just rest. Brent, just stop. My questions were important to me and I wanted answers because I wanted to know what I believed and why I believed it. Without a doubt, the reason that seven out of 10 of kids who grow up in church leave the faith, seven out of 10 kids who grow up in church leave the faith, 70%. The reason, without a doubt, is because they grow up in church never being taught and discipled and taught the answers to the hardest questions. Really answers to some basic questions even. And so what happens is they get up, they grow up, they go to college, and then their secular professors begin to challenge their thinking, as they should do, and their foundation crumbles because they said, oh, I, I never thought about these things, never considered these things. So that foundation crumbles, and then they walk away from the church, walk away from the faith, walk away from Jesus, and, and no longer believe. So the next six weeks, I'm going to be less preachy and more teachy, if you will. It's going to be different. My goal is to stretch your thinking, to challenge our minds, um, and to help you know what you believe and why you believe it. I wanted to do this series because I believe that it will be one of the most helpful things for you and for our church and for its long-term health. So really, there are two perspectives by which you can receive this series and receive what we're about to do. One, one perspective is you might say to me, Brent, there are a lot of things about Christianity that I really just don't understand. There are a lot of things that I'm not sure about. Like I get maybe the basics and I've wanted to go deeper, but I really don't know how. And so I just have this really elementary grasp. Uh, well, over the next six weeks, my hope for you is that you walk away with, uh, with a fairly robust understanding of some critical, crucial aspects of the faith. Not just basics, not just ABCs, but a deep understanding, foundational understanding that moves you from the baby pool to the deep end in terms of your thinking and understanding about the faith. The second perspective that you might receive this is you might say to me, Brent, listen, I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. I am confident in those beliefs. But sometimes I get asked questions maybe from a coworker or a friend or a family member who asked me questions about Christianity, about the faith, about something, and I just don't know how to answer. Like, I know the answer. Like, I know what I should say, and, and I, but I don't really know how to get there or I don't really know how to explain it well or, or don't know how to communicate about it. And so if that's you, uh, my, uh, my hope for you is that this series gives you uh, language to use, uh, some categories to think in, right? Uh, and so maybe some illustrations to use to be helpful to you. Uh, to be better able to communicate to those people in your life that might ask you questions or that you may start up a conversation with. First Peter uh, 3.15 says that we are to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks 
uh, for, for you for a reason for the hope that is within you. All right, so we've got to be ready to defend why it is we believe what we believe. So not only do we need to know the truth and what we believe, but we need to be able to defend that truth. And so my hope is that this series will help you do that as well. Uh, you know, sometimes the world thinks Christianity is this touchy, feely, emotional, uh, you know, just based on tradition. You just believe it because your parents said it and took you to church, but that there's really no logical or uh, reasoned or intellectual reason why you believe these things. And that Christianity, that the world says, is actually something that intellectuals really should not believe in because, you know, it's just... You know, it's pretend. It's, it, you know, it helps us in, in hard times. We must show the world that when we walk in those doors, when we think about our faith, we don't take our brains out and set them aside. We don't check our brains at the door. We don't turn our brains off. Instead, we believe that Christianity is true, not simply because we want it to be true. It's true not because we want it to be true, but true because it provides the absolute best answers to the deepest, hardest questions pressing our world. That it is true because it is logical and reasonable. We also need to engage our minds because God commands us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind. We're supposed to love God with our mind, not just with our heart. And so, uh, you know, th to thinking correctly about God is one way we love him. When I first met my wife, I wanted to know everything about her. We would go on walks, and, and I would, uh, you know, bombard her with a million questions about what her favorite movies were and TV shows were, how many kids she wanted, what she thought about politics and theology, and, and, you know, just on and on, and just ask her. And the more I learned about her, the more I loved her, and the more I loved her, the more I wanted to know about her. And the same is true with God and our walk with God. So my hope is that this series will better equip you to defend the, the hope that you have within you, defend your faith, deepen your knowledge so that you love God more deeply. So understand, I've got a lot to cover. I'm going to try not to go fast. My grandpa always told me I talk too fast. I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, my goal is to push your mind, and so stay with me, all right? Stay with me. Take notes because writing helps you remember things. Um, uh, if you have questions at the end, write them down. If you have questions along the way, write down the question. I'm going to be up here, and I want you to all come ask me your questions, okay? Uh, we can discuss them. I want you to know that in your, in your worship guide on the back, there is like a little blank you can fill out and follow along with me with. Even if you, if you have our app, you can go to the app and click on the sermon graphic and go to notes, and they're even on there too if you're a digital person. So the question we're seeking to answer this morning is what is God? That's where we have to start. What is God? Now, you might ask, Brent, isn't that the wrong question? Shouldn't the question be, who is God? Not, not what is God? But no, not if we're going to start at the beginning. See, there are many faiths that believe that God is not a who, but a what. Kind of like the Grinch. He's not a who, but a what. They, they might believe that maybe God, God is everything. You know, he's uh, pantheism. God is everything. Or that God is this mysterious force in the world. Or that God is this impersonal reality. Or that maybe God is the universe itself. So what is God? Before we can even answer that question, though, we have to understand how it is we can even know anything about God at all. Like, how can we even answer the question, what is God or who is God? 
How can we even answer? How can we even attempt to answer such a massive big question of who or what God is? How can we formulate an opinion on such a thing? Not even just formulate an opinion. How can it, how is it that we can be so confident in our answer of what God is or who God is that we would give our lives for that answer? There are three ways we learn who God is. The first two are what we call general revelation. Okay, three ways. The first two are what we call general revelation. The first one is called the inner sense. You see, all people everywhere of all times and all locations have this deep-seated reality built into their DNA, built into who they are. They have this deep sense that there is a God, deep sense that there is a God. Mostly this comes from Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read a little piece of that. Romans 1, 18 and 19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen to this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. See, everyone deep down knows that there is a God. John Calvin, uh, uh, Reformation theologian, called this the sensus divinitatis, this sense of the divine, that everyone has this sense that there is a God in deep down in their hearts. But the problem is because of sin, the text says that we suppress the truth. Picture being in a, ba- being in a swimming pool trying to have like, you know, four or five basketballs and trying to push them all under the water. And they're always trying to pop back up. But we, there's this active suppressing of the truth in every one of our hearts naturally because of sin. Romans goes on to say that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. So we can know that there is some sort of divine reality because ingrained into us, every person, is the sense that there's something bigger out there, right? But that's not enough. That's not enough to base our life off of, right? So we need more. So the second way is evidence is in nature. Theologians call this the cosmological argument, for those of you who care about such things. And basically, it goes like this. Imagine you were walking on a beach one day. And as you walk, you see something shining in the sand, and, and you reach down and you pick it up, and it's a pocket watch. And you, you dust the sand off, open it up, blow, blow the sand out, and check it out. You, you open the, the lid, and you see all the gears in there and how they would work and turn. You see the dial, and you see the hands. And when you look at that pocket watch, you can come up with one of two conclusions. Either one. That as the water of the waves move the sand, just as it formed seashells, uh, somehow magically over time formed this pocket watch by the sand grinding together through a ch- just random chance created or formed this pocket watch. Or you can be more sensible and see that this was designed. That someone took time to think through this and intimately and intricately designed every aspect of it so that it worked. It's really, when you look at the pocket watch, it screams that there is a designer. This is essentially what Romans 1.20 is saying when it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And how have they been clearly perceived? In the things that have been made. Creation testifies to a designer. So you could have been born and lived your whole life on an island, disconnected from the rest of the world, knowing nothing of the Bible, knowing nothing of religion. And when you looked out at the creation, at the world, 
it would scream to you that someone designed it. You see, when you look at the complexity of, of the earth, of the universe, of even the human body, there are complexities in its functioning that scream, not random chance, not accident, but design, intention, right? Uh, the, the world testifies that there is a creator. Uh, think about the earth. If the earth was moved just a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit further away from the sun, we'd burn up or freeze. The universe screams that it was intentionally planned and designed. But still, even though we can look at the beauty of the ocean or the Grand Canyon or the, the intricacies of the design of, a, of one cell and see how complicated it is or an atom, see how complicated and intricate it is, we can look at those things and they scream creator, they scream designer, but yet still that's not enough. Now we can just know that something out there designed this at some point maybe. We need more than just general revelation. We need what is called special revelation. And when I say special revelation, I don't mean a special version of the last book of the Bible. I mean, that was funny. I, I, I was a couple more giggles, maybe. I mean, the only way that we could ever know God, the only way we could really truly know who, what God was or is, is if he chose to reveal himself. We are completely dependent on God choosing reveal himself to us. Without God revealing himself to us, we simply stand on an island by ourselves, only guessing and grasping at straws at what might else be out there. But in God's kindness and mercy, he chooses to make himself known. He chose to reveal himself, to enter our story and reveal himself to us. Imagine with me for a moment like your favorite story, your favorite, uh, whether book or movie. Mine is Star Wars. And uh, yeah, imagine Luke Skywalker. Imagine Luke Skywalker. Patty, don't laugh at me. Imagine Luke Skywalker believes with all his heart that someone out there has designed and created his story in, in the world that he lives in. Now, he can get in his uh, X-wing and he can travel uh, the stars and go to planet by planet. He can look everywhere and he will never find George Lucas. But if George Lucas, who wrote Star Wars, if you don't know, wrote himself into the story, got on a starship and flew down to Tatooine and introduced himself to Luke Skywalker. Then and only then could Luke know the author of his universe and his story. We are no different. We are ignorant until God chooses to enter our story. We can, we can look everywhere. We can travel the stars. We can look wherever and never find him until he chooses to make himself known. He's done that. He's revealed himself through prophets, revealed himself through his son, and he's revealed himself through his word. So because of this self-revelation, we can know God truly. We no longer have to guess. We no longer have to piece together who might or what God might be possibly could be. We don't have to wonder if he's the universe, if he's everything, or if he's a person. We can know because he's shown us. He's revealed himself. So then the question is, who is he? Who has God revealed himself to be to us? What I want to do is quickly walk through 11 attributes or characteristics that God has revealed about himself to us. 11, what I, 11 of what I think are some of the most important aspects of who he is. 11 things that help us understand the scope and breadth of all God is to us. 
Every one of these are important. They're far-reaching. They have implications for our thinking. So these are in your worship guide, so hang on tight. Number one, aseity. Now, this is the only one that's a weird word, but aseity. Defined, God is self-existent and independent. He has always existed and has no end. Have you ever tried to sit down and, like, grasp eternity? Like, have you ever sit down and, like, try to think about, like, how God never began or, like, how when we go to heaven, we will just continue on forever and think about forever and ever and ever and ever? If you ever do that, man, like, it, like, breaks your brain, right? Like, you get chills. You get, like, like it just messes with us because we just kind of think of things having a beginning and an end, right? But God has no beginning and he has no end. He was not created. He has no beginning. He's never started. He has always been, always existed. And right now, just thinking about that just makes it, puts a pit in my stomach. It's weird. You get a time machine and you go back as far as you can before creation, and no matter how far back you go, God is there. And going into the future, there is no end for him. He never ceases to exist. He just goes on and on into eternity. But not only that, God isn't dependent upon anything. Now think about our lives. We're dependent on a lot of things, right? Uh, and I don't just mean like the internet and Netflix. We, like, we feel like we're dependent on those things. But, but we're really, we're dependent upon oxygen, on water, on food. Our, we're dependent upon our organs functioning and so many other things. Without these things, with any of these things stopping, we would die. But God needs nothing. He's dependent upon nothing. He is in need of nothing. He is completely satisfied in himself. Number two, immutability. God is unchanging and unchangeable in his being. Malachi 3.6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, this is super important because think about this. If God could change, if he could change, would he change for the better or for the worse? If he could change, would he change better or change worse? If he changed for the worse, then what kind of God would he become? A little more vengeful, a little more impatient, maybe a little less forgiving. If he changed for the better, that would mean that he's not currently perfect, right? And if that were the case, then how could we ever trust that since now he's changed better, that now he's perfect, maybe he needs to change some more. If God could change, that means he's not currently perfect. And if he could change we would not be able to trust him. If God could change, he would be untrustworthy because maybe he chooses to abandon his plan. Maybe he would choose to abandon us. Maybe he would choose to not keep his promises. Maybe he would change his mind. Maybe he had a better idea. But because God never changes, because he's always the same, because he's always been perfect and always will be perfect, it means that you can actually trust him. Because he doesn't change, it means we can trust him. It means we can have confidence in who he is, who he's told us he will be, what he said he will do for us, the promises he's made to us. We can have confidence and trust them because he does not change. When he makes a promise, we can know he'll keep it. When he forgives you, you can know he won't go back on it because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. Number three, omnipresence. God is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? See, God does not have 
spatial size. God doesn't have dimensions, right? Uh, he is present at every point of space with his whole being at every moment. And yet, God can somehow act differently in different places. You know, we learned over the past few weeks when we were studying Jonah, how Jonah tried to run away from the presence of God. And was he very successful? No, because no matter how far Jonah ran, he could never flee the presence of God. He could never get away from God. God is everywhere. He's everywhere. Now, now notice what we're not saying. We're not saying God is everything. God is not this building. God is not the trees outside. He's in this building. He's near the trees outside, but he's not those things. He's near them. You know, however, think about, we often pray and sing phrases like this. God, be near me. God, be close to me. God, we invite you into this place. Uh, God, be here. God, where two or more are gathered, we know that you're there with them. But if God is everywhere, why do we ever need to invite him to a place? Isn't he already there? Why do we need, why is God present when two or more are gathered in his name? Isn't he always present? <laughs> why do we invite him to our worship services? Isn't he already here if he's everywhere? You see, while God is everywhere, God chooses to function differently in different places. For example, when you look at the Old Testament and in the temple, God chose to dwell in the holy, holy of the temple, the centermost part of the temple. He chose, he chose to specially dwell there, so much so that if you walked in there when you weren't supposed to, you would die because you would be consumed by the presence of God. And the Ark of the Covenant was in there, and one time they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant on these poles, and they kind of tripped, and it kind of tilted, and this one guy went, put his hand up to, to steady it, and the second he touched it, he dropped dead. Because God's presence was specially there, somehow in a different way than it just was everywhere. Uh, think of a New Testament example. God lives in the hearts, he indwells the hearts of believers, right? Like if you're in Christ and you're here this morning, God lives inside of you in a different way than he is obviously inside of unbelievers, right? Like God's presence is near and inside of unbelievers, but he lives differently in you. And so he's everywhere, but he can be unique in some places. Now, let me pose to you an interesting question. Is God, since he's everywhere, is he in hell? Is God in hell? You know, we often refer to hell as the absence of God. But it is not the absence of God. It's actually the absence of a relationship with God. God is very much in hell. Not that he is suffering in hell, but because hell is not a place that Satan rules over. Hell does not belong to the devil. Hell is a place God rules over. And yet, so I hope that makes sense. So yet, even though God is in every place, in every space, at every time, God cannot still be contained by any amount of space. He's everywhere and yet cannot be contained. So let that sink in. Good luck. <laughs> Number four, omnipotence. God is all-powerful, right? That one seems pretty easy. God is all-powerful. We might say that means that God can do whatever he wants. God can do anything. And while that is almost true, it's not true. Oh, it's almost true. There are things that God can't do. God is all-powerful, and yet there's things he can't do. God cannot be, for example, illogical. God is uh, a God of order, not a God of chaos. 
the laws of logic, for example, flow from the existence and nature of God. So uh, maybe you've heard the question before, can God make a rock so big that God cannot pick it up? Some people ask that question and think, gotcha, God doesn't exist, see? Some people use this question as a trap. But this question is nonsensical, illogical. If God were to make a rock so big that he could not lift it himself, the rock would cease to be a rock and the rock would become God because it would master God. So the answer is no, he can't do that. He can't make a rock so big he can't make it, pick it up. Let me ask you another question. Can, can God create a world in which two plus two equals five? It doesn't, just so y'all know. You're bad at math like me. Two plus two does not equal five. It doesn't, it's nonsense. He cannot do it. God cannot make a world in which two plus two equals five. Nonsensical. Let me give you a little side note. This is something we've really lost. All truth, spiritual and secular, all truth is God's truth. Whether it is the truth that Jesus is the son of God, died on the cross and raised him three days later, or if it is two plus two equals four. Both of those truths belong to God because God is a God of truth. And as Christians, we are to care about truth, um, all truth, because it belongs to him. And so because it belongs to him, because it's true, we should care about it. That matters. Another thing God can do, God cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot be evil because he cannot do anything that is against his nature. He can't do anything against his nature or character. He cannot sin. But in any and everything that is sensical, that is logical, God can do. God can create the world by speaking. God can part an ocean through a staff and a dude named Moses. God can, God can raise the dead. When we get to heaven, we might ask God, God, how did you part the Red Sea? And, and God might say to you, hey, listen, okay, so what I did was I superimposed the atoms and heated, supercharged them, and then use a bunch of, like, you know, smart words that I don't really understand, and, and, and you know, maybe the molecules do this, and then and he might explain it scientifically. We go, oh, okay, I didn't get that, but sure. Or he might just say, yeah, man, I just did it. I just parted that thing. And both are sufficient, acceptable answers because God is all-powerful. Number five, omniscient. God is all-knowing. Past, present, future, God knows everything. He knows your every thought, every intention, every action. He knows what will be. He knows what could have been. He knows and understands science that our minds couldn't fathom. He knows all knowledge. Now, let me give you two applications of this. One, do not try to cover up uh, your, your intentions, your thoughts, your feelings that are bad from God because you are an open book laid bare before him. There is nothing that you can manipulate or hide or trick him to not see. Uh, you cannot, you know, we do that to each other, right? We put on a good face, we pretend, we act like everything's all good or whatever, uh, and, and whatever, but not with God. Like, he sees past the facades we put up. You are an open book laid bare before him. So instead of trying to manipulate or cover those things up, find comfort in the fact that God sees you exactly as you are, and yet he still loves you. And he still loves you. The second thing is we can trust God with our future because he knows where it's heading. He's seen the light at the end of the tunnel. He is the great author who has written our stories, and so we can trust him with our future because he knows everything. 
Six, sovereignty. God is the supreme ruler, independent of all authority outside himself. You see, God is acting according to his own will and desire. One thing that we don't really understand a lot uh, is that we talk about us having free will. We don't really. Because if I had free will, I could choose to live my whole life without sinning. Can any of you guys in this room do that? No, we can't choose to, to live our whole life without sinning. We're, we're going to sin, we're going to make a mistake. Our will is bound by something. It's bound by our sinful nature. It's bound by sin. So it's limited in that sense. But God's will is not. God's will is libertarianly completely free. Not bound or beholden by, to anything else. It's not bound by space or by time. And so he acts according, as Ephesians 1 says, to his good pleasure. What he wants to do, he wills and does it. He is the author of creation. He is the storyteller. Uh, as if with the stroke of a pen, he wills the world into the direction of his choosing. So again, we can rest and trust in our futures that there, our future is not headed toward chaos. Our future is not headed toward destruction. Our, our world is not headed for anarchy. We can know that the gates of hell will not prevail because the sovereign arm of the Lord is in complete, absolute control. He is sovereign. Number seven, spirituality. God is immaterial. You know, when we think about God, we often imagine this old man in the sky with a long white beard, you know, a grandfatherly figure, something like that. Because we, have to, we feel like we've got to picture something. But God has no form. He has spirit. But you ask, maybe, well, if God is spirit and he has no form, how is it that in the Old Testament God appeared to Moses and he walked with uh, Adam in the garden and he appeared to Abraham and walked with Abraham and ate with Abraham? And how, how did God do that if he has no form? Well, that is what we call a pre-incarnate Christ. That was Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the only person in the Godhead who has taken on and who will uh, forever take on human form. When Jesus was made flesh, he's now, when he ascended into heaven, he was still flesh, and so he will forever be physical in a human body. He is the image, as John tells us, of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. The Father and the Spirit are not physical. They're spiritual. They are uh, they were without form. Only Jesus has a form. Number eight, personality. God is self-aware, has a will, and an intellect. He is not a force. He, is not a, he, he has personhood. You know, people like to talk about, you know, the universe is on our side. Or people like to talk about, you know, karma, you know, getting what you deserve, the, the universe bringing balance. But God is not an it. He is not a force. He is not a thing. He is a person. He is personhood. He has personality. We, as people in his image, have personhood and personality because we're created in his image. It's personhood. Number nine, good look on this one, the Trinity. God exists as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let me, be, let me, let me try to make this simple. God is three persons, not three forms, not Three expressions, not three modes. 
It's not like he says, all right, now I'm the father. Okay, now I'm going to be the son. Okay, now I'm going to be the father. Okay, I'm going to be the son again. He doesn't bounce around and choose to just interact in different ways. He is one God while simultaneously three distinct persons who are yet still one. And we are not to mix or confound those persons together, nor are we to divide the substance of which they're made of. Meaning, we cannot attribute to one member of the Trinity what another one did. So for example, it would be false teaching or heresy to say that the Father became flesh, or that the Father, you know, sometimes we accidentally say this when we pray, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for me. He did not. The Father did not die on a cross for you. The Son did. And the Father does not just take on the Son, that's a different role he plays. No, he, the Son is a distinct person of the Godhead of the Trinity. The three distinct persons, one substance. Sometimes we try to use illustrations to make sense of this. Uh, we'll talk about a three-leaf clover. You know, it's one thing, but three. Or we'll talk about three, water in three forms, gas, water, and uh, gas, liquid, and solid. Or, or the fact that I'm a father and a son and a friend all at the same time. But all of these illustrations fall short. And so they're, they're, they commit a heresy in one way or the other. So let me just say this. Here's what we believe. That God is one. There is one God. But God exists in three distinct individual persons who must not be mixed. A father, a son, and the Holy Spirit. They all have personhood. They're not it's. The spirit is not an it, it's a he. They are yet one, one God in three persons. Number 10, he is holy and righteous. God is perfect, set apart from sin, and his actions are always right. You see, God is the standard for goodness. He is 100% perfect in all of his ways. This one is actually really important. It's not that God cannot be in the presence of sin. Sometimes we say that. That's not true. Obviously, Jesus spent every day in the presence of sin. But God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. This is not because God is just vengeful and he likes to make up rules and punish people who don't follow them. It's not the, that's not the case. The reason, because God is perfect. He is the standard of goodness, meaning he is the definition of just. And being perfect and just and good and holy and righteous means he cannot allow sin and evil to go unaccounted for. So imagine with me for a moment, a judge who walks up the stairs to his big judge seat. As he sits down, he looks out, he's shocked to find that his son has found himself in the defendant's chair on trial for murder. And as the judge listens to all the evidence, it's crystal clear. All the evidence is it's undisputed. His son committed murder, guilty as charged. And when it comes time to render the verdict, imagine this father as the judge looks at his son and he dismisses all charges and lets his son go free. What would we do? We would cry foul, we'd cry injustice. We, we would cry, we would demand action. We'd say it's a scandal. It'd be news headlines, riots in the streets. But now you understand the position God is in. Because God is being perfect and holy and good and just sits in the seat of the judge and his children are on trial for lying and stealing and lusting and being greedy and slandering and gossiping and on and on and on and on. And we, as God sits there, looking at his children in the defendant's chair, he as the judge, if he lets us go, 
He says, well, you're my children. And I know, I know you didn't mean it. I know you're better than that. If he makes excuses, if he says, I know you won't do it again, he says, I, I, it's, it wasn't that big of a deal. If he lets it go, he's no better than the judge who lets his son go. God would be corrupt. He would be unjust. If God excuses even an ounce of sin or evil, he is no longer perfect. He is tarnished, culpable. Can't do it. He simply can't. It's against his nature because at the core of God, his nature is purity and goodness and holiness and righteousness, justice. So he cannot let you go unpunished. It's, it's honestly the difference between Christianity and, and Islam. In Islam, uh, Allah says that as long as you have more good works than bad works, you can make it to paradise. So imagine a scale. And as long as you have more good stuff, you know, to put over here than bad stuff you did in your life, then you're good. You'll make it in. But what does that mean of Allah? It means that he's not perfect. He's not good. It means he's corrupt and unjust because he allows imperfection into paradise. It means he allows sin to go unpunished, evil to reign without account. God cannot do that because he is good. And if he did, he would not be good and could not be trusted. He would be a corrupt, evil God. It leads me to my last 111, that God is love. Love is that God seeks the good of others. See, God wanting to see his children set free from the guilt and the shame and the charges laid against us, God's love demanded action. His, just, his, his goodness and holiness and righteousness demands action for justice and punishment, but his love demands that he have mercy, and so he's at an impasse. He cannot dismiss our sin or our evil because that would make him complicit. It would make him culpable to our sin. So there's only one thing that God can do, the thing that only pure love would compel someone to do, that God, the rightful judge, executes his justice and retribution instead of on us, he puts it on himself in our place. That his goodness demanded retribution, his love demanded mercy, and so he takes the retribution for us. He takes the lashes, he takes the death, he takes hell itself in our place, the guilty verdict that was meant for us, he takes instead. So God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God seeking your good because he loves you is seen in this ultimate sacrifice on a cross 2,000 years ago that he gave his life for you. And now that love is made manifest again and again and again in your life every single day. That God is love compels him to work for the good of your life, the good of your marriage, the good of your family, the good of your kids, the good of your job, the good of your friends, the good of your heart, the good of your mind, the good of all of your life. God is after that because he loves you. And like we looked at Jonah the past six weeks, God is relentless in his pursuit after you in the goodness that he wants to bring in your life. So maybe you're here this morning. And you would say to me, Brent, I don't know the God you've been talking about, but I want to know more. We sing, you can come and learn more about him, learn more about what it means to follow him. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, Brent, listen, this has been helpful. I, I, there's a friend or there's a coworker, there's someone in my life, family member, who's asked me these hard questions and I've just put it off because I don't know how to answer them. But now you want to say, you know what, Brent, I need to learn. I need to figure that out. I need to figure out how to answer those hard questions for myself and to give an account to these people to defend the faith that they might believe it too. Maybe this morning you need to come pray for courage to have that conversation. 
Maybe you're here this morning and we just need to sing this next song and be in awe of who God is. That, that I've just scratched the surface of the complexity and depth of who God is. And maybe we just need to sing and be reminded of his beauty and majesty and reflect on his wonder. Whatever the Lord leads you to do this morning, if you need to pray, if you need to sing, do that. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, as we have examined and thought about the, this idea that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've shown us who you are. As we think about these complicated ideas of, uh, of you being everywhere, knowing everything, and, and, and being sovereign, and existing in the Trinity, and, and Lord, some of this is overwhelming and it's hard, but Lord, would you give us minds to comprehend the things you have revealed to us. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room this morning who doesn't know you, maybe they've believed in God, but haven't believed in you. Maybe they've believed in, in, in a divine, uh, a force, uh, the universe, but they haven't believed in a personal God who sent his one and only son to die on the cross to forgive them of their sin. Well, God, this morning, would you press it upon their heart that, to take the next step in following you and come grab me and let's pray and talk about it. God, God, people in this room this morning, and, and well, this is a lot of us. Help us to be honest about this, God, that, that we're here and we have family or friends or coworkers who have challenged uh, or have, have asked questions about God that we've not had the answers to. Lord, would you help us this morning to commit to find those answers and to have the courage to start those conversations, that we might give a defense for the God we believe and trust in that we may be able to explain logically with reason why it is you are who you are and we are why we believe what we believe. God, maybe this morning we just need to sing and not be worried about lunch, not be worried about the plans for the rest of the day. Maybe we just need to sing this song and, and, and focus at the wonder of the God who spoke and, and a millennia of galaxies were born in an instant. The God who spoke and created humans and all their intricacies. The God who spoke and fashioned the world into existence. God, let us sing and just marvel at you. Whatever we need to do, God, give us the courage to respond. We pray these things in Christ's name. All those people said, stand together and sing.